We are passing around the uh, worksheet for tonight's class. Uh, We are in uh, the midst of our summer study on Wednesday, which uh, deals with the Minor Prophets. We introduced our first week, uh, the Minor Prophets. We are looking at our third prophet. We are trying to do this roughly chronologically. Um, So uh, who remembers who our first prophet was? Obadiah. Okay, the longest book in the Old Testament. Okay, all right, let's make sure. It's early. Uh, I'm, I'm warning you out, huh? It's a minor prophet. It's a length thing. Thank you. That goes back to our first week. All right, who followed uh, Obadiah? Joel. All right. And then we're looking at Jonah tonight. Um, as I think we've pretty well fanned these out. If you missed a sheet and you wanted one, raise your hand. Got one up here. Anybody else? Okay. All right, free association. When you think of Jonah, you think of a whale, right? And in vaca- uh, we used to in uh, Pew Packers and in Vacation Bible School. Y'all ever sing that song? I'm not going to lead it. The uh, Daniel in the Lion's Den. Who did? Who did? Who did swallow Jojo Jonah? And uh, maybe for some of us, that's about as deep as the theology went. Miss Darlene needs one. If y'all are we out of sheets? Did we give out? Got an extra one. Miss Darlene needs one. Um. So we're going to go a little deeper than that, hopefully tonight. I wanted to share this with you. Uh, I've got a book in my library by J.W. McGarvey, a restoration leader. By the way, did you know he was born in Hopkinsville, Kentucky? I did not know that until I was looking in the forward of the book. George Dehoff brought it back into print. He wrote it in 1895. J.W. McGarvey, among his work as an educator in uh, the College of the Bible and in other uh, places, Uh, He also was one of the champions back in the days of modernism. So in modernism was a movement that tried to disclaim that the Bible was inspired, especially to try to undermine uh, any miracles that existed, to try to give some kind of naturalistic explanation. So I've got this little book in my library where he takes on eight of the, I mean, the defining scholars of the day. Um, if, If anybody's a lexicon nerd, there's one called the BDB, and one, the D in BDB is Driver, Joseph Driver. And Driver denied that Jonah was actually swallowed by a fish, but that it was some kind of tradition that man came up with. And McGarvey, when he needed to step up to the academic plate, could really bring it. Uh, and he uh, does a great job of proving the historicity, the factuality of, of Jonah. About the time, he wrote that book in 1895. In 1891, there was a man by the name of James Bartley. And it could be in the back recesses of your mind, you've heard a preacher talk about this. Bartley was on a whaling boat near the Falkland Islands. And they were pursuing a sperm whale. And as they were bringing it into sight, he was one of the harpoonists. And he went to shoot uh, this sperm whale and... It, uh, he got tangled up and uh, reported to have been swallowed by this gigantic sperm whale. Sperm whale has a stomach with the capacity to be able to hold one ton of krill at a time. It needs four ton of krill a day to live. So here's Bartley. He goes inside this fish. They are able to finally, they're in the midst of fighting and subduing it. They're able to finally get it under control. They get it up onto the boat. They find, Well, they get it near the boat. They finally get the stomach isolated out up on the deck. Hope nobody's 
Got a weak stomach. I should have said warning before we got there. Um, they opened it up, and as it was reported on both sides of the Atlantic, inside they found unconscious but alive James Bartley. He, he passed out not from the lack of oxygen, but from the heat inside the well. 36 hours almost, I suppose, from beginning to end was the way the story went. By the mid-1890s, um, it was reported on both sides of the Atlantic. In fact, on his tombstone, I don't know if it still stands, but for decades, it said, The Modern Jonah. And creation scientists for almost 100 years touted that the Jonah uh, report was accurate because it's happened in modern history, uh, in modern times. But science has pretty well across the board proven that this was a hoax. So here you were thinking, I want to be able to tell somebody this really happened. It didn't. But remember, I may have told you, I think it maybe even in this spot, about what happened to Michael Packard two years ago off of Cape Cod. He was a scuba diver, and he was on the bottom of the ocean, and he was getting lobster, and the humpback whale was after the same thing and swallowed Michael Packard. You can... You can do it now if you want to, I suppose. You can Google it. There he is. He's sitting in the hospital, the iconic photograph with bandages. He's got the thumbs up. He survived. He lived to tell the tale. Anybody know how long he was inside that humpback well? Well, yeah, one second's too long. Right. 30 seconds. Um, and what was happening was the humpback well wasn't after Packard. It was after lobster. And it had taken in this massive amount and it's, it, the muscles were already contracting, trying to swallow, and Packard wanted no part of that, so he's trying to fight his way out of it. Finally, the humpback realizes, I got something I didn't mean to get, and spits him out, okay? Now, there are other stories. You may see that on that little banner on your sheet that I have there. A guy by the name of Peleg Nye was a, a, a whaler off of the, uh, the, the Cape Verde Islands, and he was also um, uh, a harpoonist. And he also got caught in uh, a sperm whale's mouth, uh, was technically swallowed, but only momentarily broke a couple of bones and was severely bruised. There was a man by the name of Edmund Gregory back in the early 1800s. Same thing happened. If you Google it, you can find two or three. But the point is, none of them were in there very long. And um, Mr. Bartley, for even putting it on his tombstone, I don't know that I would want to lie going out of this world, but... Uh, there's no modern example of somebody who lived inside of, of a big fish. But you, you realize that the word well is not used in the book of Jonah, nor is it used in um, the New Testament by Jesus in its original language. Uh, accommodatively, it's used that way. Uh, our word in the Hebrew is fish in the Old Testament. Jesus in Matthew 12 and verse 40 uses the word sea monster to talk about what takes place. But the book of Jonah is not about a poor unfortunate man who's swallowed by something that God prepared for him in the depths of the sea. What is the book of Jonah about? Okay, so the disobedience, a guy who wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. And first of all, what is Jonah supposed to be doing? Preaching to Nineveh because he is a prophet. And what does he do instead? Anything but, right? As far away from it as he can. So we're going to look hopefully a little deeper into what happens in the book of Jonah. It's a, it is a literary masterpiece. If, we, if it were our focus tonight, we would 
dive even deeper into the patterns that will uh, unfold in the book of Jonah. For example, chapter 1 and and chapter 3 are about Jonah and the Gentiles. But chapters 2 and 4 is about Jonah and God. Uh, In the prayer... Uh, it is an interesting thing. Have we ever talked about chiasms before? I'm not going to go too deep into that. It's like uh, if you have uh, in Jonah 2, 1 through 10, you have 10 verses. And verse 1 and verse 10 are extremely similar. They're parallel to each other. Verse 2 and verse 9 are extremely similar to one another. And I encourage you on your own time to go back and look at it. And in a chiasm, what the whole poem is about is what's in the middle. And it's a prayer. It's not, a, it's not strict poetry, but it's written in poetic form as uh, a Hebrew writing. And the heart of that prayer is the middle of the chapter. So that's just an interesting sublayer that takes place in this particular writing. Jonah's unique from the other prophets in a lot of ways. First of all, he is the only prophet whose entire writing was to a heathen nation. It was directed at that heathen nation. Anytime he's talking, he's doing his mission, he's speaking to Gentiles, to heathens. It is also the only book of its kind among the minor prophets where it's about Jonah. It's about the prophet. It's not so much about his prophecy. Eight words in his sermon is all that we have in a brief conversation in Jonah chapter 1. And it is the only one in which the prophet is cast in a negative light. Now, if you, off the top of your head, were to talk about who are the, the major characters in the book of Jonah, who are they? Jonah. Okay, well, I guess you could say the fish. Yeah, he's, he's uh, definitely got a, a, a marquee role in this, but he's, he's not really the major character in the way I'm speaking of it. Human characters. Jonah. The people in Nineveh. The sailors. God. Okay, so let's go through and analyze that. What's the overall bottom line assessment of the book of Jonah regarding the sailors? Positive or negative? The sailors. Positive or negative? Overall positive. How does it end with the sailors? Worshiping God. Right? They're convinced. We'll say more about that. Uh, The people of Nineveh. Overall positive or negative? Positive. Extremely positive. God, of course. Noah. I'm sorry, Noah. I knew. I knew I was going to do that. <laughs> Sounds like it. Jonah. What's the, what's the highlight for Jonah? In the book of Jonah. Okay, I, I suppose you can make a good argument for that. He obeys. He goes and preaches. Uh, what, what kind of preacher is, is Jonah? Compassionate? Blunt. You might even say mean-spirited. We don't have an idea as to whether he relished the message, but it's a message that he didn't really want to or like to speak, so much so that he runs away from God. But the high point, it seems to me, is when he's in the belly of that creature and he's praying to God. It's the time when he's the most humble. It's the time in which he's the most submissive. It's a time in which he sees the grace of God and the salvation of God most clearly. And right after that, he does obey God. But, but do you see any reformation, any change in the life of Jonah, substantially speaking, in chapters 3 and 4? Not at all. He's the same guy. Who sees God more clearly, more powerfully than Jonah? 
He's a prophet of God. He hears the word from the Lord. By the way, that phrase is found seven times. The word of the Lord. There's an emphasis. There's no mistake that Jonah's receiving his revelation from God. And in a man who is most intimately acquainted with God, he's a Jew. He's the only one of the chosen people in the entire book of Jonah. And yet he's the guy farthest away from God. What's his problem? What's keeping him from having the kind of relationship God wants to have with him? Okay, and what does God want? All right, God wants the, the Ninevites, but what, what's... He wants obedience, certainly. Jonah is lacking the love and compassion that God wants, that God himself is showing. He shows it to the sailors. He shows it to the Ninevites, but to whom else does he show it? Jonah. Not just once, but twice. In both encounters, in chapter 2 and chapter 4, there's some, some interesting things to, to note here. Uh, when we look at the info in the background of the book of Jonah, Jonah's name means dove. Jonah is the son of whom? Anybody? You got your Bible open? Amittai? We know nothing else about Amittai except that his name means truth. Jonah's name means dove. Anything ironic about that? When you think of the dove, you think of what? Peace. Is Jonah the prophet of peace? I, if you wanted to give him a, his spirit bird, what is it? It's not a dove. A hawk. I mean, he's a war hawk, right? God destroy them all. Now, they do say, the bird experts, what is that, an aviarist or the bird experts, they say that uh, doves also love to be close to home. Now, is that true of Jonah? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, in fact, when God says leave home, he, uh, he says, okay, I'll go to the other side of the world, to the far western edge of civilization. I'll go to what's today Spain, 2,000 miles west of Palestine. He's from gath which is four miles, I don't know if it's southeast or northeast of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. And he hops, or however he makes transportation, he gets to the only semi-usable port in Palestine at the time, and that's in Joppa. And just by the way, an interesting point. We think about Joppa. Do you know anybody else that did some work in Joppa? Peter. And uh, around Joppa is also Caesarea. Who did Peter, what did Peter do in that area? Who did he go to preach to? Cornelius. Cornelius. Cornelius was a Gentile. And Jonah, not anything like Peter. He's The only reason Joppa's on his map is it's the boat that's going to carry him away from Nineveh, Assyria, 200 miles to the east of Palestine. So when we think about Jonah, he rejects his mission work. How about his domestic work? Do we know anything else about Jonah besides the book of Jonah? Did you know he appears somewhere else? Okay, we'll get to the New Testament. That's very important. We are going to see Jesus and Jonah. In fact, that's McGarvey's book name is Jesus and Jonah. But elsewhere in the Old Testament... 2 Kings chapter 14. Let's turn over there real quickly. Uh, 2 Kings 14. Let's look at verse 23 through 27. In fact, I'll, I'll, I'll refer you to it. Jeroboam II is the king of Israel. And I, I say Israel right now, I'm talking about the northern kingdom. The kingdom is divided already. Remember we said there are uh, around 20 kings in the northern kingdom. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is the first one. Um, how many of them are righteous? Do you remember? Try it lower. Zero. Zero. All right, none of them are at all. And so Jeroboam II is, has a long and prosperous reign. It's 41 years. And um, 
it tells us about his spiritual status. He leads Israel to sin just like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's said about every king in the northern kingdom after the division is that they followed Jeroboam the first. This is Jeroboam the second. Follow his sins. And so what happens during that time? They're wicked people. They're acting wickedly. And what does God do for them during this time? In 2 Kings 14. He drops the hammer on them, doesn't he? He restores the territory. They're as big as they ever were, except for the times of, of Solomon. They, God restores the borders that were taken away from them through foreign invasion. Why? Verse 27. Okay, so this is an act of what? If you were to describe this, this is an, what kind of an act? Is God performing in the reign of Jeroboam II, even though it's financially prosperous times, it's spiritually atrocious times, and what does God do in response? Deliverance, mercy, kindness, restoration. Did Israel repent? Do you think that, that Jonah should have learned a lesson at that time? And by the way, you think about Jonah's status. We usually think about the prophets, and we think about how the prophets were received in their own country. When they go to their own people, it's not favorable, is it? We have the, the writer of Hebrews saying that some of them were sawn in two. They wandered about in the deserts in sheepskins and goatskins. They were destitute. The prophets were among those individuals. And you think about how Jeremiah was mistreated. You think about how Micaiah was mistreated. How do you think Jonah was received? What is Jonah's message to the home crowd? Things are good. I promise you, it's going to be great. And then, how do you think his popularity went when it came to pass? It goes even higher. All right, so he, that's his first mission. And now he gets this mission. So that's Jonah, Jonah's background. He would have given Jeroboam the second's reign. Um, he would have done his work to, to Nineveh, this particular, what we're reading in Jonah, around 780 B.C. He's one of the earlier prophets. So let's think about his audience for a moment. Do we know anything about the Assyrians? Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria at this time. What do we know about them? Okay, and I don't know who the old comedian was. How brutal were they? Yep, so they're the first ones in history to practice mass deportation. Um, uh, by the way, Miss Ruth told us about the promise. We watched that movie about the, uh, uh, the attempted extermination of the Armenians. It was the first modern uh, genocide. Uh, and that was the Turks forced a mass deportation, forced folks to, mo uh, to leave the country. Well, the Assyrians were the first to do that. And they would take people out of their country and then they would put other people in their places. They did that several times. They made slaves out of their captives, which is a very common practice all the way back to ancient times. Uh, but something else that they did was you dare not, and they wanted to make sure that you did not rebel against them. Because if you rebelled against them, um, of course it threatened their empire. And so we begin to see some of the annals. There's a, um, a black obelisk uh, that was found in 1846. It has pictures uh, on it, and it was, it's the, the uh, exploits of Shalmaneser. It's in the British Museum in London today. And it has the first known depiction, pictorial depiction, of a biblical figure. And it's of Jehu, the king of Israel, who is paying tribute to Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria. This is about 50 years before Jonah writes. So this is what's in Jonah's background. 
You've humiliated. Our king had to lay himself out, grovel in front of you and pay tribute. And then all the stuff you're doing to all the people around the world. The, the stuff, I mean, really, I found quotes. I, I didn't want to share it with you. It's too, it's too graphic what their generals and what their uh, rulers would do. And God says, I want you to go and preach to Nineveh. What's got to be going on in, in, in uh, Jonah's mind? Okay, so that's going to come out before the book is done. Uh, when we get to chapter 4, uh, he's going to take the, the most commonly quoted passage in all the Bible. Remember last week, uh, when going through Joel, um, uh, Hiram pointed out that this uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, who God is, the first description of God in the Bible. He's full of loving kindness, uh, and he uh, shows his mercy to, to those, uh, and he shows his, he punishes those who uh, are not penitent to the third and fourth generation. But when Jonah uses that in talking to God, he's not complimenting God. He's complaining. Jonah knows that God wants him to go to these people who are so hated, who are not Jews, who are Gentiles, and go and preach to them, and knowing that he would rather run away from God if he can instead of doing that. All right, so let's look at. Um, an overview of, let's get to there. Let's, this is the outline you probably know the best. George L. Robinson wrote a book of a commentary on the minor prophets. And if you've ever heard this preached, you've probably seen this outline, right? In chapter 1, he's running from God. Self-evident. How does he do that? How does he run from God? Gets on the ship, tries to go to Tarshish. All right, in chapter 2, we find him running to God. Why do we say that? Yeah, he's praying. He's actually, at this point, he's been saved, and he's praying to God of praise and thanksgiving. There's no petition as far as I can tell. He says, I did petition him. But in the prayer, he's saying, you did this for me. You're great. And then in chapter 3, you have him running with God. How do we say that, or why do we say that? Or why does George say that? Yeah, he, he obeys this time, right? And then chapter 4, we say he's running ahead of God. Now, why would we say he's running ahead of God? This is 780. Incidentally, and I'm not going to overload you with dates this time, 722 is when Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to be destroyed by the Assyrians. And then a little while after that, a guy named Nahum is going to come along. What's Nahum's job? He's, he's talking to, to Judah, to, to the people of God, and what does he say? Goodbye, Assyria. All right, so that's what's going to ultimately happen, but it's not time now. And so Jonah's trying to do Nahum's job. You ever want to do somebody else's job? Maybe you thought somebody else had a better job. Jonah wanted, he was auditioning for Nahum's job. Nineveh, you're gone. But that's not his message. And so he's running ahead of God. All right, so what I want us to do is to walk through the chapter and let's see the the major points of that. We don't have time uh, to go through uh, all verse by verse, but as we go through chapter 1, we have the mission of Jonah. We've already talked about that. Uh, Jonah is sent to Nineveh, but he goes uh, over to, tries to run away. He's on the Mediterranean Sea. God causes a storm in verses 4 through 10. God's behind that. Um, where's Jonah when the storm is what's going on? Okay. By the way, start building your mental list. You, you know anywhere else in the Bible where somebody's asleep in a storm? I mean, by the time we're done, you're going to see a lot of compelling similarities. Some of it's by contrast. Now, why is Jesus asleep in the boat? 
He's in control. Why is Jonah sleeping in the boat? We can deduce that he's tired. Maybe all that mental energy in devising a plan to disobey God, all the, the fretting and the, the stress that's a part of that, uh, what's involved in how fast is he trying to get from gath Hefer all the way down to Joppa? Is he just worn out from the logistics of travel? Whatever it is, it must he must have been tired because this storm is getting worse, right, as you read through Jonah chapter 1. And what are the sailors doing? Right, they're going to get there. They're going to get there. What do they do first? What's their impulse reaction? What do you do when you think life is over? These guys are terrified. They pray. Who do they pray to? Whoever they are, they're gods. All right, and so then what's next? Well, okay, before we get to the cast lots, what do they do first? Go wake up the strange guy that's sleeping through all of this, right? All right, and then they cast lots to find out who's at fault, who's at fault. Jonah. Now they're full of questions. Five questions they ask him. He answers a couple of them. He basically answers, I'm a Hebrew. I serve the God who is the Lord of heaven and the sea and the land. Is there any significance in that? They're having trouble with the sea. Where do you think they want to be? On the land. All right. And so uh, he says, I'm the cause. I mean, I can remedy this. What's his remedy? Now, we've got a storm that's intensifying. On the Mediterranean, not a pond. This is a huge, this is, we're thinking, think ocean. Why would Jonah want to be thrown in the water? Yeah, what, what, do you, what do you think maybe is in Jonah's mind? What's going to be accomplished when he gets thrown in the water? What do you think? I mean, yeah, you're gonna, this is it. I want to be done. Does, is he suicidal in the book of Jonah? Twice. I'd rather die. Let me die. He prayed all that he was in chapter 4 when God sends the east wind and the gourd or the, or the, uh, the plant is, is gone. He's, he's, he's pained to death. He'd rather die than to go through this. God's got different plans for him. He wants to die and then God's going to... Well, and by, by the way, what happens as soon as he goes into the water? Immediately. Make you think about... Jesus and Jonah, there, isn't that interesting? Jonah's thrown into the sea, verse 11 through 16. There's as much focus on the sailors as there is on Jonah. What happens with the sailors when Jonah goes in the sea and it is calm immediately? Who do they, who do they offer the sacrifices to? The gods? To the Lord. Now, it's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar. It's unfinished business here. I don't know. Did they go and try to proselytize and become Jews? Did they become God-fearers? Did they, were they converted? We find them in a much better place now than they were then. And then in verse 17, what happens? He got swallowed. All right, the, well, the, the big fish, that's what we always, the, the sea monster swallowed uh, Jonah. All right, so what happens after that? Jonah chapter 2. You can't see that. I thought you might could. Um, I thought I had another one there. All right. I have a chart, and if I can think of it, um, the one thing that you're going to find, maybe you you found this, what does Jonah chapter 2 sound like as you read through it? And if you have real good eyes, there's a hint on that up there. The Psalms. I forget who my source was, but there are allusions or phrases in every 
major phrase in Jonah chapter 2 that corresponds to the Psalms. So you know what those who have a low view of inspiration do with that, right? This is some kind of copy. This is some kind of later tradition. Um, this, this is not the authentic prayer of Jonah. Um, and I don't know. What is Jonah's profession? He's a prophet. So what does he spend his time full-time doing? Studying the Word. So even if you don't do that full-time and you find yourself in trouble, do you find yourself... I'm not talking about you're in a valley of valleys. What do you do? Do you ever recall, reflect on scriptures? Do you ever appeal to God with regard to scripture? Do you ever connect the desired promises of God with scriptures that you know? You may not be able to quote book, chapter, and verse, but you're thinking about them. It seems to me this is what Jonah would be doing. And a heart full of thanksgiving, a heart full of gratitude, a heart full of praise that God has come and has now humbled him and has caused him to be submissive in the belly of this creature um, when you think about what's going on inside of Jonah in chapter 2, God uh, causes him to stay alive. Some have suggested could have been that at some point he died and arise in chapter 3 and verse 1. God brings him back to life. I don't know that we can prove that. Uh, if it were, just be another point, uh, a nod to Jesus uh, in Jonah. But either way, he's as good as dead. He just says, I go down to Sheol in chapter 2. And with that being the case, as we look at that prayer in Jonah chapter 2, uh, we find a man whose heart and whose thoughts are on God. But inside the belly of that creature, what do you think it's like? It's, it has to stink. It smells like whatever he's just eaten. Uh, you know, you, th- you think about a fish on the shore, but now think about being inside a fish. If you blow that fish up and you're inside of that, how it would amplify the smells for you. So it stinks. It's dark. It's uncomfortable. What does he say about it? He says, I think it's about verse 4. He has seaweed around his head. You know, so it's just a, it's just a miserable ex, uh, experience. What I reason that's up there is, th- is this what you think about in your mind? <laughs> Do you think about Walt Disney's depiction? Do you think about Jonah inside the well, Rumi? And he's on a boat. You've got Walt Disney theology here. You've got a, huh? got a little lantern, right? And he's... And just kind of, yeah, there's some tumultuous time when Monstro opens his mouth, but he's just in there, you know, oh, for three days. It's not like that at all. It's miserable. It's horrible. And God keeps him alive through it. Now, some have suggested that, as, who have studied whales, so we're saying if it's a creature like that, if it's a prepared fish, I would think it would be the same. You think about the gastric juices inside of a, a creature. Some have suggested that when he comes out on the dry ground, he would have been bleached of all of his color. He'd been white hair, translucent skin, and would have maybe even been ghastly in appearance. So just when he, when he spit up on the shore at the end of chapter 2, we're talking about one of the major cities in the world. Do you think that maybe it, there's one person who's out mending nets or standing at the shore and sees this guy come out of this big creature on to the, to the shore, on the dry land? Do you think he goes back to Nineveh? It's at least 100,000 people, which is big for an ancient city, and says, you will not believe what just happened. All right, so here comes a guy now, and when we get to chapter 3, and by the way, this is just kind of an outline if you want that. Um, he has a change of heart. That's at least temporary repentance. You've got a crisis of life that's reversed. He thinks he's going to die, and God saves his life. 
There's a commitment that he makes to praise. Unfortunately, sadly, it is not a commitment that he is going to do well to honor. And then, of course, just to keep the C's going on there, the only alliteration in this one tonight, have a coughing up fish. That was the more polite way of the other words that some versions use. All right, so we have him out on the shore. Can you imagine this guy now who now obeys God's command as a prophet, and he goes into the city of Nineveh, By the way, it could be that he looks normal. Maybe God preserves him. Maybe God cleans him up and he looks normal as he was before. Uh, And he comes through and he preaches, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight word sermon. But if God didn't clean him up, can you imagine the effect that that would have on people? Hey, that, that guy who came up on the shore, he's in the middle of the city now and he's saying he's got a message from God. And we don't have much time before it's all over for us. All right, so we have in chapter 3 him going to the people there and speaking to them and preaching to them. Um, They they hear his preaching, verse 4. As a result, they believe in God, verse 5. And I want you to help me. Look in chapter uh, 3. Do you see any fruits of repentance? How can you tell that Nineveh is resolved to change. All right, so let's kind of make a little list here. They proclaim a fast. How is that a sign of repentance? What, what are you doing in a fast? Denying You're denying yourself as a, as, a, as a sign of what? It's certainly a self-denial. What are you saying to God about the circumstance that you're in? I know this is bad. God, I want you to know how serious I am that you please... Don't do what you said or do what you promised. Please don't, don't do what has been proclaimed. So we've got a fast in which they're afflicting themselves, they're denying themselves because of how serious this is for them emotionally and spiritually. What else do they do? Put on sackcloth. What's the, what does that indicate? Mourning. What are they mourning over? Their spiritual condition. All right, so we've got them fasting, we've got them mourning. What else we got them doing? Okay, what's the proclamation say? Look, look at verse 8. All right, so uh, this, was the, the, this proclamation is to call on God, right, verse 8, and to turn from their wickedness and violence, verse 8. And then they humbly hope that God is going to reverse course, and that's exactly what he does. All right, so we get to chapter 4, and we have the displeasure and rebuke of Jonah. In verse 1 through 11, we've already talked about him quoting Exodus 34, 6, and 7, but as an accusation, not as a word of praise to God at this point. And how does God answer Jonah in chapter 4? By the way, why is Jonah sitting there, perched up over Nineveh? He's waiting for destruction, but what has God already said in chapter 3? He's not going to do it. But Jonah so hopes that maybe God will be able to see it as he sees it and will take care of these terrible folks. But what does God do while he's sitting there waiting for the the lightning to strike? He causes his plant, comes up overnight, and what is Jonah's response? He's greatly pleased. Oh, man, you think it's a hot part of the world. It's very arid. And we're going to see, in fact, God's going to turn the heat up. Overnight, the next night, what happens? It's gone. He causes an east wind on top of it to come so that Jonah is miserable. And what's God's point with that illustration? Yeah, you, you care about this plant. 
that you didn't plant. It just came up. You had nothing to do with it, and it's gone. It's just like that. You had no chance to really even bond with the plant. It's only there for 24 hours. But what about me and these Assyrians? I love them. There's 120,000 of them that don't know uh, right from wrong. In addition to the animals, I don't, I don't know. It, you know, animals are, are certainly innocent. But God says there's cause enough for me to relent and not do this. You care more about, essentially, this inferior, this thing that's going to burn up one day than what will never die. All right, that's, that's Jonah. Let me discuss very quickly some major themes from, from Jonah. And if you want to play some passages alongside of this, we can do that. Uh, obviously, you can't run from God. David says in Psalm 139, 7-11, Where shall I go? Where shall I flee from your presence? Wherever I go, you're there. Uh, that's a comfort if we're walking in the light. Um, but if, if we find ourselves in a place where we're not living the way that we should, then it is a disturbing thought. Uh, God is concerned for all men, Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that fears him and works righteousness is accepted with him. Even Assyrians, even those of Nineveh, absolutely, that's the point. Also, Jeremiah 18, 7 through 11, prophecy is conditional. God says, I may send a prophecy that a city's going to be destroyed. They repent. I change my mind. I may tell them they're going to prosper. They do wickedly. I change my mind. Prophecy is conditional. What's the prophecy that Jonah gives to Nineveh? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. It's conditional. They met the conditions. God causes all things to work together for good. Um, it's neat to see what all God is doing in the book of Jonah. God sends the storm. God sends the fish. God sends the preacher. God sends the plant. God's working everything out. And the thing is, I want to be on God's side as he is at work. Romans 8, 28. It's not in man to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10 and verse 23. And that's certainly something that Jonah had plenty of an opportunity to learn. All right, New Testament usage, basically it revolves around two things. The repentance of Nineveh in Matthew 12, 41, and in Luke chapter 11 and verse 32, uh, God says that the people in Jonah's day repented, but there are folks that Jesus is speaking to who's not. And he ties that to his own resurrection in Matthew 12, 39 and 40, and in Matthew 16, 4, he repeats that. Um, and... I want to do this tie before we end class. If you will, just quickly, looking for my glasses. They're not there. I'm sorry. All right, Matthew 12, 39 through 41. If you can get there, you can read it with me. If not, I'm going to go ahead and read it. An evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of, the, of Jonah the prophet. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So let's build our, let me give you the list real quick. Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish. So was Jesus in the tomb. Jonah, like Jonah, Jesus was willing to be sacrificed for the sake of others. The sailors didn't want the blood of Jonah on their hands, but at the cross, people wanted the blood of Jesus on theirs. They cast lots over Jonah. They cast lots over Jesus. Jonah preached a message of repentance, and so did Jesus, Matthew 4 and verse 17. Jonah selfishly wished for death and didn't die, 
Jesus unselfishly prayed that he might escape death, but he became obedient to it for our sake. Jonah is a very New Testament account. Uh, and I, I would suggest to you that because we ran out of time, there's probably even some more that we could tie together between Jesus and Jonah. Uh, by the way, the only one, Jesus thought that Jonah was real and that that, fit, that sea monster was real as well. All right. Thank you for your attention. Next week. Next week will be in Lehman Learner tomorrow because we, we have a little question as to which one should be next. Of the welly of the bell. At least you didn't call him Noah. All right. <laughs>